Hello, this is Sophia. And I'm Victoria. And you're listening to It's All History to Me, Auburn's History Radio Hour at 8 a.m. on Thursdays. Each week, we will interview a history professional with the theme of uncovering untold stories. Let's get started. I am in a conventional dither with a conventional star in my eye. And you will know there's a lump in my throat when I speak of that one. Hello, and welcome back to It's All History to Me here live on Weagle 91.1 FM. Today, we're joined with Dr. Heidi Haas. Dr. Haas is an assistant professor of history here at Auburn University. Before coming to Auburn, Dr. Haas received her BA at the University of Notre Dame and then went on to get her master's and PhD from Princeton University. Dr. Haas's research studies are early modern medicine, surgery, prosthetics and technology, the body, and disability, while she teaches classes on everyday life as well as witchcraft in early modern Europe. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah. So what got you interested in studying history? Um, So for me, everybody's story is both different and also the same. Uh, So (laughs) for me, it actually started with, um, I grew up a military brat. Same. Uh, Yeah, did you? Yeah. Everybody's story is different but the same. (laughs) Uh, So I grew up a military brat, and uh, so my family moved around every four years, and uh, Every time that we moved and were in a different place, my dad is like a history buff, um, mostly American history. And so he would always take us to historic sites and things. It's one of the reasons why I think public history is so important because of the way that it connects and inspires people, connects with and inspires people at every age. And then he was stationed at Ramstein Air Base. Um, when I was in middle school. So I lived in Germany for four years. And those were really formative years of, uh, you know, there was a castle near my school um, on the army base. And uh, I got very excited about European history and specifically German history. And my favorite things that we visited and that I saw in those four years of, you know, being able to, to go on sightseeing trips, you know, were related to sort of renaissance era kind of stuff i actually really liked as a kid palaces oh yeah Yeah. it's like different (laughs) like i know like some people like battlefields or whatever i love like the palaces with the hidden doors and all that and they tended to be from the 16th and 17th centuries so it sort of started when i say sort of a childhood passion that matured over time that's kind of where it starts was being exposed to history at a younger age and thank i can thank my parents for that Uh, That's so cool. So yeah, you basically touched on this, but just to ask it in a different way too, was there a specific person or teacher, professor, or class that especially sparked your interest in history? So right. Well, so there is the interest in history where I can sort of really point to my dad in particular of exposing as a kid. Um, And then, but I would say in terms of sparking interest in history to be a professional historian Mm -hmm. didn't happen until undergrad like the idea of um actually going to graduate school and maybe spending my life doing history um and I did have a there was a particular class that I took and it was a history of witchcraft course um Ah. when I was on a I was in a study abroad program for a year so I spent my junior year at Notre Dame at New College Oxford Ah. and um Lyndall Roper, who's a historian of witchcraft that I teach um, at different levels, uh, was somebody that I worked with. And wow. was it was a really, the class kind of made me sort of think that, wow, so you can learn about so many things. You can learn about kind of everyday life. You can learn about what seems kind of this sort of incomprehensible beliefs about the past that can become comprehensible when you step into people's shoes and... Um, I can really sort of point to that study abroad year as an undergraduate as kind of taking my interest to sort of that kind of next level of a professional interest, I'd say. Yeah. Right. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. What specifically got you interested in the early modern time period? And can you define the early modern time period for our listeners that might not know? Right. So there's no reason that anybody who doesn't do early modern history should know like what early modern means. And early modernists themselves argue about exactly what the period is. So it's roughly um, around 1450 to about 1750. 
Uh, it's like I say, like in the European context, like roughly Renaissance to Enlightenment are like kind of good benchmarks of like beginning and end of the period. And I mean, specific interest in early modern history, um, again, it had to do with sort of cultivating sort of an interest at a younger age in kind of elite culture and palaces and things. And I really mm -hmm. have to kind of highlight the power of secret doors and hidden like panels and palaces <laughs> as a kid. Like what that kind of, the sort of, you know, the secret worlds that that kind of, uh, like yeah. you know, like opens up in one's imagination of what were these people's lives like. Uh, it sort of, it started there and it kind of continued through. And I think some of the things that are really wonderful about the early modern period is it's, it's coming out of the Middle Ages. So it's not, a, it's not a break with the Middle Ages mm -hmm. exactly. Right. And I also love medieval history, yeah. um, but it's also moving into something new. And there's a whole bunch of I'm a very dramatic person. There's a <laughs> whole bunch of dramatic things that all happen concentrated in a couple hundred years, yeah. like uh, Reformation and religious wars, like uh, developments in the scientific revolution, like you know, things like the Enlightenment, uh, like the. Uh, exploration and discovery and things like that of um, Europeans sailing around in ships and sort of a sort of whole shift in connection, global connections around peoples in the world just being done through um, the growth of commerce and, and so forth. So there's just so much that happens in that period of time that I find it endlessly fascinating. Yeah, definitely no shortage of cool moments to uh, analyze and look mm -hmm. through for mm -hmm. that period. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Okay. So as we talked about at the top, uh, your research versus your teaching topics vary. And so would you be able to tell us a little bit more about how you came upon the specific topics for your research versus how you differentiate those from what you teach? Yeah, so that's a really good question because they're uh, professional historians. Um, they do history in lots of different ways. Mm -hmm. So I think sometimes there can be the assumption that you sort of do one thing and that's the thing you do. So whatever it is that you're doing in the classroom is also what you write books about, is right. also what, you know, like mm -hmm. you feel like you're doing in, in other ways. Um, and so, yeah, so a distinction for me between research and teaching. So I was trained in graduate school in kind of a broad way in cultural history in early modern Europe. In cultural history, it's kind of an orientation of thinking about what did the past mean to them, to the historical actors I'm interested in. So what did such an event or what did living in such a place such an environment or having like you know such an image in one's life or creating such an image what did it mean to the people who were involved it's uh it's sort of broad orientation but it means that i trained in a lot of things so i trained in uh art history and reformation studies and also witchcraft studies and women and gender lots of things and where one gets to use that uh in a more kind of everyday sense is in the classroom, right? Yeah. So, so like in, in a lot of ways, the classroom is an opportunity to, it, you can bring in some of what you're researching as a way to deepen what you're doing uh, in courses, but also it's a way to continue to engage with and keep up with all of these different other areas of the time and place that you specialize in. So for me, early modern Europe and get to share all of these cool things with right. students and sort of and keep in touch with them. So I think I would be uh, very sad if I weren't able to ever sort of really engage with and spend time reading about and talking about with uh, with students, you know, something like um, uh, sort of just off the top of my head, um, I'm going to say witchcraft studies again, because I don't happen to have a current research project about right. it, right? So it's like that's sort of a way that you constantly engage in that. And you're trained to do that as well. And in terms of my research uh, area, I wasn't actually trained to do history of medicine. Oh. Um, like that was, I was pulled and drawn into it after kind of doing a bit more um, history of science work as a graduate student. Mm. And then when I was picking a topic for my dissertation, I became really interested in the history of surgery, of pre-modern surgery, oh, yeah. uh, and about the body and the body in the past and, and whatnot. And it wasn't something that I had trained in at all. And so I developed a whole new sort of set of skills, uh, analytic skills, and learned about new kinds of sources to look at uh, in order to pursue a, a kind of research question that I became really interested in, which for me was about the idea of the body being taken apart and put back together 
in the 16th and 17th centuries, um, mm. questions that people in the early modern world were asking and practices they were trying, the difficulties, the human experiences and stories of that. Uh, and so that's sort of the, the rabbit hole that I jumped down yeah. for the research and is where the book that has come out of the dissertation, um, it focuses on. So books can kind of be uh, the research that one does, they can tend to focus more on specific topics, right? More specific things that you're telling a story about. Whereas in the classroom, you're able to sort of play in all kinds of different sorts of arenas, right? Some very broad, getting to touch on lots of cool stuff. And some classes, as you, like, you know, are, are more narrow. And um, some of the differences between research and teaching for a professional historian is... Uh, you know, where you're kind of deep down in super specialized, mm -hmm. right? And then this other area of teaching life where you get to sort of continue to touch on and look yeah. at all of these other important uh, themes and ideas and places and topics that you otherwise, you know, don't get to engage with in your research. Yeah, that's so neat that professors are able to have the best of both worlds where you're keeping in touch with all your interests while also getting to go deeper in mm -hmm. your research for the specific one topic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So, and I mean, I would say specifically, like, in my teaching, one of the things that I emphasize is, you know, uh, everyday life in early modern Europe, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the reasons that I like to do that is uh, it's very important when we tell stories of history that equally important to looking at individuals, like powerful people or, you know, your uh, great, you know, learned examples of mm -hmm. people is that there are the, a vast majority of people who are illiterate in my time period, and it's harder to get at what they were thinking right. and what they're yeah. doing, but they have very rich lives and very rich um, and complex kinds of understandings of their worlds. Mm -hmm. And so it's even more rewarding to try to get at something that's so hard to learn about because they haven't left written records in the same way. Right. So it's a priority to always sort of bring in when I'm teaching um, in a way that has a deeper emphasis necessarily than what I end up doing a, a, a research thing on because it's a moment to also share that with students, that balance of, you know, you might be more familiar with sort of big names of history and big moments or big battles or big treaties that were signed. But also there's like, the 98% other part of the population who are doing right. these cool things and right. their stories are also important and let's like, you know, kind of like uh, flesh out a bit of like what, what the world was like in this different time in this yeah. different place. That absolutely makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. What is one misconception about early modern Europe that you want to dispel? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, so I think what I would say, it kind of connects to what we've been talking about, um, about everyday life a little bit, and that's, I would say the, that the scientific revolution is more complex than, and more nuanced than is mm. what's usually taught. So the yeah. idea, I think, is kind of a, a, a misconception is that we have sort of a series of isolated geniuses uh, who come up with these ideas like out of the ether and now we have science <laughs> right <laughs> right like, and now science is here yeah modern and that's what the early modern period does right <laughs> it's like we're now modern it's how we became modern because of these like handful of isolated geniuses thinking mm -hmm. like very smartly in their isolated rooms of right stuff. and what historians have been focusing on for you know the last 15 years at least um is showing that what we think of as the scientific revolution is actually involves a lot of ordinary people, a lot of craft mm. people, people we wouldn't consider learned, people who didn't go to university, who are developing different kinds of ways of learning about the world, empirical ways oh, of sort of testing yeah. ideas and gathering information and sharing information. That's influence, influencing how early modern society more broadly thinks about authority and knowledge making or empiricism and that there is a kind of a network, uh, communities of people involved that are, are often overlooked. So it's kind of dispelling this kind of misconception that, you know, that the scientific revolution is actually just sort of like three really smart guys. Right, <laughs> like, right. Like that, that like actually this story is much cooler than that. Yeah, yeah. 
Absolutely. And I think that ties in so well with our last question before our first break, which is how does your work contribute to our theme of uncovering untold stories? So I think in maybe, I think in maybe, um, I would say three ways. Yeah. Like one of, one of them is sort of, cause I can kind of talk about like undergraduate level, graduate level and, and research. Mm-hmm. And at the undergraduate level, I think it's kind of that commitment of trying to incorporate um, experiences of everyday life into right. like the, when I teach the early modern survey or when we go to upper level, like just ideas about what did the majority of the population think about their body or about the world, not neglecting other areas, elite culture or learned culture, because that's also equally important. But mm-hmm. so it's sort of, and because it's so hard to get at, again, what the vast majority who are illiterate, who are not leaving right. writings behind to get it is, you know, it's, it's harder work to do, but really rewarding. So it's making sure their stories are sort of told or found. And at the graduate level, I spend, um, I teach a course on popular culture in early modern Europe. Oh, yeah. And it's a similar issue of uh, working towards, you know, spending a semester on how do you kind of get at this, uh, you know, what the broader population might be thinking or feeling that, that isn't leaving written records and, and how do we do that? And we do it at a much uh, a much more sort of sophisticated um, and in-depth level than you can yeah. do in undergrad. So rather than kind of sprinkling everyday life in, it is an entire semester class of just, we're in this. This is what we're talking about. Right. How do we get at the majority of the population? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would say in research, in terms of uncovering untold stories, I've been focusing a lot of time on both trying to uncover these uh, actors that I refer to as amputee patrons Mm -hmm. that we know practically nothing about in real terms. Um, We know very little about the history of pre-modern peoples um, who experienced mental or bodily difference. And uh, and a lot of it is because we don't have a lot of ego documents and ego documents are like, um, like a diary, like firsthand accounts of what, you know, that this is how I think and feel today kind of documents. And the ones that we have from the period that I study, they tend to gloss over any kind of in-depth discussion of any kind of mental or physical difference because of the culture that they're in is one that tends to try to downplay that and to instead focus on other other aspects of their lives or what's going on in their lives. So it's really hard to get at. And I've been focusing on these artifacts Mm -hmm. that remain mechanical hands that can kind of give us insight into what the people who commissioned them, you know, what they were looking for in a prosthesis, how they were navigating social relations around them, how they were managing a very traumatic change to their bodies after an amputation and, um, sort of seeing these signs of agency and influence coming out of the kinds of objects they commissioned and looking for evidence of how they may have used them to kind of uh, navigate the world around them, both practically, but also socially and in all kinds of other ways. So that's kind of been, that's been one of my deep commitments in my research in terms of uncovering that story because we just don't know much um, about that group of people. And I think they... I think they had a lot of influence, actually, in ways that we haven't noticed before as historians. Powerful stuff. (laughs) And it makes sense, too. connects well to what we talked about last week with Native American history and how they have the same, like, similar limitations, I guess, in, like, physical paper source trails, Mm -hmm. written word. So it's super, super neat to get to listen to historians talk about how they get at those periods (laughs) and see those perspectives when they can't use the written word. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it does It does ask for, like, different kinds of analyses because there are all kinds of, you know, different sources out there. And a lot of us are trained in looking at written sources and um, using other kinds of sources are equally important, but actually in some ways are far more potentially revealing of a far wider number of pe- pre-modern peoples, right. right? And so it's very important to engage with those sources and to figure out how how to, like, you know, responsibly interpret visual and uh, physical, like, visual sources and physical objects, buildings, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Hmm. Yeah. We're going to take our first ad break, but we'll see you in two minutes. 
Good morning and welcome back to It's All History to Me. This morning, Sophia and I are joined by Dr. Haas, and now we're going to move into a conversation about her recently published book, which is entitled The Malleable Body, Surgeons, Artisans, and Amputees in Early Modern Germany, which was published by Manchester University Press in 2023. The book highlights a collection of fascinating stories surrounding a rather mysterious piece of early modern European history. So what inspired you to write about amputees in early modern Europe? Uh, so I, it's like, t I find that telling the truth is increasingly awkward, but I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to keep telling the truth because yeah. like, this is the, the true story of how I eventually came to this topic. Um, so as a graduate student, my first dissertation proposal idea was to do a, um, a cultural history of the first, uh, sort of outbreaks of syphilis, which was the, the early modern Germans called the French disease mm. um, in the 16th century. And so I was looking at uh, like sources from like um, pox hospitals and different treatises that had been written by like learned anatomists. Um, and a lot of them had talked about sort of astrological astrological meanings behind what this disease could be and how it affected people. But I was most interested in works that were written by like craft trained surgeons. So they didn't go to university. Oh. They're people who work with the body. They're mm. actually on the ground in pox hospitals, um, pox houses, treating patients who are experiencing something that was, it was as like, again, cultural historian here, as early modern Europeans experienced it, it was a new disease. Biologically speaking, it's hugely controversial about whether it was new or not. Mm. But they perceived it as new. Okay. And they were trying to figure out, you know, like particularly it was very virulent in the first outbreaks in the 16th century. Um, it, it progressed actually much faster in terms of parts of the, the body kind of putrefying and, and different parts falling off. Mm. And so they were asking and talking about, you know, amputation came up quite a bit. Uh, mm. Also, you know, noses coming off, uh, oh, wow. needing to remove genitalia, um, mm. parts of genitalia to say delicately, you know, and so there are a lot of human stories that would come up because they're, they're not telling you in just a very, uh, I don't know, maybe the word in a, in a completely clinical way, a detached right. way, they're telling you about, you know, these are some of the experiences we've had with, pa you know, with patients and some of the stories are quite difficult and what I realized is I was very drawn to these human stories found mm -hmm. in these kind of surprising sources but they were written by a certain kind of practitioner so I kind of became attuned to these craft trained surgical practitioners tell a different kind of story than your like university trained learned physicians right. and um and these human stories of this question of the body being taken apart and then what do you do after it's a, it was a very pressing question of, uh, like around this disease, but I realized in the way they were talking about it that this is a this is a bigger question. So mm -hmm. that's sort of the kind of the tagline. It's like it's bigger than syphilis. <laughs> like that there was <laughs> yeah. something bigger. There was like happening among mm -hmm. surgeons a conversation they were having about taking the body apart because in medicine going into the early modern period was very, um, it was non-invasive. Mm -hmm. uh, topical treatments were like the order of the day. Mm -hmm. um, any kind of invasive treatment, they were very, very cautious about it. And so the idea that you need to remove a limb or, or you need to remove a very sensitive part of the body, um, you know, that was something that was done very rarely and uh, with great deliberation usually. And they were having to do it more and more, these surgeons. And I, that's the thing that I kind of got clued onto is that this is actually beyond just these treatises about early modern syphilis, which led me to look at surgical treatises more broadly, which led me to then focus on, I realized the biggest controversies that the surgeons were having, it was about limb amputation. Oh. Like that, that it's, you know, that, that was the, besides trepanning the skull, <laughs> right? This trepanning the skulls uh, all like right up there. Yeah. But otherwise limb amputation was the most invasive procedure hmm. that a surgeon performed. And they were surgeons in this, the period that I'm studying, they were debating about techniques and about, you know, what one as a surgeon was supposed to do or not do in a way that had not been done in the medieval period. This hmm. something that was, I marked as new. And so that drew me to the story of uh, 
of surgery and about also what happens after that surgery, this arc of, you know, not just limb amputation, but then also then, so you're, you know, now you're an amputee if you've survived the procedure and most didn't. Um, We don't have a good way of actually being able to to know what survival rates were because we don't have good sources for statistics until much later. Mm. But one really renowned medical historian estimated something like an, like a 30% survival rate. That was like her best estimate. And wow. I think it's, it's not unreasonable. It's a very dangerous procedure. They wash everything with eggs. Oh, like if just to give you a sense of like <laughs> when we're talking about, yeah. you know, why why would it not go well? Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea of like sanitizing <laughs> yeah. equipment and like keeping the wound clean, it was you know, you know, it was just different things. Yeah. But but so so you've survived, right? Against all odds, you've mm-hmm. survived um, this procedure, and then and then what happens, right? So what like your story does like, and that's one also an important part of what the book explores is making sure it's telling. Um, a full arc, one that doesn't just end with the surgical procedure, but that like sort of life keeps going after the surgery and you right. survive the surgical procedure and then you have your life and it's like, and what are you doing in your life? Um, which then eventually led me to the artifacts of the mechanical hands to see like, what are then what are amputees, um, you know, what are they doing? So it was a very uh, a winding road yeah, to sort of yeah. get to a project that focuses on that. Absolutely. Um, that started in one place and ended in a very different place. Yeah. And it was all like my advisor told me, and this is what I echo to um, our graduate students, and I echo it as well to our undergraduate students when they're working on stuff. Follow the sources. Like, right. just follow the sources, and that's kind of – that is where the sources took me, from syphilis to amputation to mechanical hands. Wow. So, uh. Yeah. <laughs> Um, where did your research lead you as you were writing your book? Specifically, like, what what sort of did the research process look like? Okay. So, uh, I think doing research is, I find it incredibly exhilarating um, because I look at it as sort of like doing, being a denders or a way around it or another way of approaching it. Yeah. So, my, like, the research looks for me a bit like so there's a lot of printed sources so looking at treatises that are written by these craft trained surgeons um and they're using the printing press for that's another one i was saying what are exciting big things that happen in this short like 200 years printing press is like (laughs) like huge different like shift in information technology happens so many cool things that happen but anyway they're using the printing press which means that people who ordinary practitioners whose ideas usually existed in an oral culture are actually writing them down and then printing them widely. Mm -hmm. Like, so you're actually getting insights that you weren't able to get uh, 100, 200 years before. So looking at printed surgical treatises, these are very old documents. So going to a lot of rare book rooms um, and uh, and reading there, there are some rare book rooms in the States. And then there are, uh, I did most of my rare book room work in Germany at a research library called the Herzog August Bibliothek, which is very cool. And uh, so you sort of have like a, you get these sort of piles and piles of very old books that you're, you know, sort of very carefully like going through and reading. Um, Some of them have been digitized. So some of them are on Google Books now, funnily enough. So it's Mm -hmm. like I can both do research where it's like, I'm sorry, I need to like take this international flight (laughs) and then take like four trains to go to this really obscure tiny town because there's a specific library that has a copy of this thing. Yeah. You know, to like read, right? Right. Or, you know, and then other times it's like, ah, Google Books, done. (laughs) Anywhere, like, you know, and then you have to like read it, but it's like, it's funny. So there's there's that aspect. Um, But also in terms of the the research process, I also found the limitations of those sources. Um, So I was looking for you know, also what happened after the procedure. And so I did archival work um, that involved going to different um, archives in Germany. Uh, And I picked, I think there were sort of six big places I had in mind, but scattered through a couple of different cities where I looked at different kind of pockets of, you know, so there were um, archives for hospitals. There were um, archives for the city council. There were archive records for, um, like, lazarets. Uh, mm. So for soldiers who were injured, in some cases, would be, like, a, uh, different kinds of institutions like that. Just to sort of look for evidence of 
you know, people who survived the procedure who are amputees, what are they, what are they up to? And then also looking at different kinds of uh, guild records because in terms of figuring out, so people have to make prostheses, so who's making them and like mm -hmm. figuring out are there any records of somebody making a prosthesis? And um, my eyesight got like two like integers worse. Oh no. Like during that process <laughs> because like the, you're, you're using a lot of like microfilm, mm -hmm. uh, microfish, and it's very hard on your eyes. And then yeah. you're also looking at these like very old documents in Suterline script, which mm. is, so it's not only a different, uh, it's a different, it's a, it's a different script from what is used today, as well as being handwritten, as well as being so. There's all these right. factors. It's very hard on your eyes. But what I what I discovered from all of that is um, is that there was not a strong archival uh, evidence of what was happening to mm. amputees, like in the out in the world. And yeah. so I had to kind of make some decisions about well, does that mean that I can't actually pursue the full narrative arc of body taken apart and put back together? And I was really dissatisfied with that idea, um, particularly because just in the sense of, and this is where like priorities and engaging with disability studies, the idea that like, okay, and now our interest in, you know, somebody who undergoes a significant surgical procedure in the past just ends with that they survived the procedure. And we don't think about, you know, they have this whole rich, full life that had, right. like, like what happens in that? That's, in, that's of interest. That's, you know, matters. And, uh, and so then I had to sort of look at what else is there, like what else is around. Uh, and that's when I went and I saw my first mechanical hand because ah, I started thinking yeah. about what's here. And I was like, well, I could try to find material culture, you know, actual physical objects. Is there anything? And those particular kinds of objects survive because um, most of them are made of iron. Oh. And the surgeons refer to them very passingly in their written sources as um, iron hands. Hmm. Like, one, you know, if you, you know, for, for patients who have had like a limb, uh, a limb removed that you know, the best course forward is to get an iron hand. So mm -hmm. they were talking about iron hands and they knew about them, yeah. but they don't talk about them in depth and they're right. not designing them and they're not making them. Huh. Um, and so there wasn't written sources there, but then I started finding the artifacts and that led to a, and this is where the sleuthing stuff comes in, <laughs> doing like all of this. Uh, so I was looking at catalogs of exhibitions of sort of figuring out what museums may have had what emailing a ton of collections and then yeah. going and out to these museums and also going to there are two barons that I worked with so they're private f families um night traditionally knightly families that wow. have a long genealogy that have held on to uh and in each case a mechanical hand through like 500 years uh so there are so a couple in private collections but in these different museums across Germany and you know, going going out and examining them, and you know, photograph, learning how to photograph objects. You know, right. like I had to go get a camera and figure out how to work it and do all that yeah. kind of stuff. So yeah, so the research process led me down unexpected paths. That again was all about, you know, following the sources of kind of figuring out what's out there, like what's a viable source to to do. And if you want to tell a story, you know, you have to both kind of balance you know, are the sources there to tell that story or not? And just because they seem to not be there at first, it, you, you might have to come at it in a different way that you hadn't expected. Um, and it's really rewarding to do it that way because it led me to a source that historians have not worked with. They just oh, yeah. haven't. And so it was actually weirdly to my benefit that there weren't uh, strong archival sources right. about what I was looking like that if the sources weren't there that I wanted, and because of that, I found an amazing, unexplored other kind of source. Yeah. Yeah. Such yeah. a cool journey yeah. to get to where you've yeah. gotten with your research. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, it was a lot of fun. It continues to be fun. And I still, I still email the different contacts that I've made. So the current Freiherr von Berlichingen, so Freiherr is, like, was talking about the Baron, so Baron of Berlichingen, uh, he actually will still email me like at different points and I'll contact him about stuff. Uh, and his family has two mechanical hands that are very famous in Germany uh, to let me know that like, this was just like maybe a month and a half ago. He was like, hey, so I had a friend who was um, vacationing in Cornwall in England and they happened to see mounted up on a wall of like a Tudor house, like a preserved Tudor house, 
uh, a mechanical hand and they took a picture of it and sent it to me and I'm oh. sending it to you. So it's like I'm also like kind of building I have it's like an Excel sheet now, but eventually I'm hoping to sort of build it out into an actual da- database I can share with, you know, other people to yeah. to look at of, you know, kind of finding like where are these objects out around in the world and through Europe and kind of getting some sort of accounting um, of what's out there. And I'm, I'm getting tips from, you know, contacts that I made in that process. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how did this amputation change the lives of those who underwent it? So the re- surgical removal of a limb, um, it was such a serious procedure because the both the medical practitioners the patient and the patient's family, friends, and in cases even pastor were involved in making a decision about whether or not to undertake an amputation. It was very dangerous. It involved a lot of, um, so convalescence could take several Mm -hmm. months. And by convalescence in the time period I'm talking about uh, meant the period where you're, you're treating the residual limb um, to, to heal and to no longer, you know, be open or in danger right. of, of blood breaking. So there's dangers of different kinds of complications that could happen. Mm-hmm. So there's like, so there's this sort of risk to life. And then if you come out the other side of that, all right. And also one of the things the book talks about is the experience of phantom limbs in this period as well. So oh, there's that yeah. aspect too. But if you come out the other side of that, um, then there is the question of, how does it affect one's ability to resume whatever kind of um, occupation that one had before? And one of the most powerful stories we have in, in, in an ego document, in a first-person document, is the autobiography of Goose von Berlichingen, mm-hmm. who's the ancestor of the, the Freiherr that I just mentioned that sent me the, the picture of his friend vacationing in Cornwall. <laughs> but Goose von Berlichingen is this 16th-century knight with this had like this really awesome sort of attitude about things. Um, he was kind of popular in his own time, and he writes an autobiography and is, and he's sort of 80 and blind, and so he dictates it, and a, a scribe writes it for him. And he talks about how um, he loses his uh, hand from a, a kind of cannonball shot that hits uh, the pommel of his sword and sends shards into it about the wrist. And so he even describes it hanging a little, like the the hand hanging a little from his skin. Mm. And he had to be taken off the field and uh, have the rest of it removed by a field field surgeon. And he talks about thinking that he was, his words were translated into English, that he was ruined as as a knight. He's wow. ru- like he uses that word, the, mm. the German version of it. Like he's ruined as a soldier. Like he would just be a poor soldier. Like poor is in the sense of like, you know, he couldn't envision that he would resume being able to return to the battlefield, which for him was his identity. So that's sort of when we're talking about occup- like occupation, it's both how one makes one's living, but it's also tied up in one's identity and how one's identity is affected. And in his mind, his he saw like his identity being destroyed essentially. Right. Um, but then he continues cause his story continues on. He keeps saying he actually, it was through talking with other people who come talk to him at his bedside as he's convalescing and recovering that he hears a story of another knight who had also lost a hand in battle, who mm. now uses an iron hand and he is able to sort of, a, his words are something like accomplish a thing in the field as well as any other. Mm. And, and he was thinking, well, if I had, you know, if I had God's help, you know, I think I could do something. I think that I would be fine. And if I don't have God's help, it wouldn't even matter if I had like 20 hands, oh, you know, yeah. let alone just one hand. I wouldn't be able to do anything. So if I have God's help, you know, and maybe he took the form of like having an iron hand, then I bet that I could, I bet that I could return resu- t- to the field. And mm. then he is known in his lifetime to have actually um, obtained an iron hand that, uh, contemporaries note having seen him worn wow. so he does actually return to the battlefield hmm. it's not actually something that changes his ability to resume his particular kind of occupation now that's not necessarily the case for every um, every amputee in the period or affected in different ways but what that one story does suggest is that when we talk about how it changes people's lives it's 
it's one of both like thinking about livelihoods. So what kind of family network you have and support network you have is very important. So what social class you're in and your family network is huge. You know, the occupation and ability to make a living, but also how this is tied up in identity and how right. this can also be tied up in gender roles too, um, oh, yeah. in different kinds of ways. So there's, there's a lot there for uh, a pre-modern amputee to navigate. And we know so little about how many of them did that. And that's why the, the surviving artifacts are really important to look at because right. it's one way, it's not the only way, but it's one way we can sort of try to get at what some, um, what some amputees did. Yeah, such a multifaceted yeah. way to look at the, the lives of people in this mm-hmm. particular mm-hmm. period and just how they grappled with everything as society was evolving so much too on top of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as a product of your research, you've developed a unique partnership with the mechanical engineering professor. Can you tell our listeners more, more about that? Yeah. So uh, I've been working with Dr. Chad Rose um, in the mechanical engineering department, and he's wonderful. Uh, and we're currently uh, working on a project together um, where he's my co-investigator on an uh, internal grant um, that is funding uh, our ability to create a 3D printed prototype oh, of wow. one of the artifacts of one of the mechanical hands, the Cassell hand from my source base, um, and develop the, use it as a case study to sort of develop the theoretical kind of underpinnings of how one would design experiments mm. to, you know, do things with the prototype in a lab, things that you couldn't do with the original artifact because oh, the original yeah. artifacts are so um, delicate. Right. right. They're so, you can't really, you can't physically do a, a lot with them, though that I have I have um, manipulated a lot of them to sort of see the movement of the fingers and how they lock into place and how you release them. But I wouldn't use them to try to, like, pick something up, right, mm-hmm. because they're they're so delicate um, and, and damaged. So sort of developing, like, how, how would we experiment with this in a way that's historically grounded, so it would be meaningful, historically contextualized to the early modern period, so it would tell us something about the early modern period. Right. Um, and could potentially be a model that could be used t- for, you know, prosthetic artifacts of other time periods to learn about the experiences of people in the past. So, like, one of the wonderful things that Dr. Rose is doing is like, so I had this virtual 3D model that I had worked with a, an architect to originally make of the artifact. And uh, I c- cannot use the 3D, like, so, like the 3D, like, uh, modeling software. Oh, like, yeah. I, it is like a spaceship. Like, it's, <laughs> you know, I like, open it up and I was like, I have no, I don't understand what's happening. There's like, there's a lot. Um, and yeah, I reached out to Dr. Rose to, to see whether, you know, he was interested in maybe could you, do you think this is a printable file or could be turned into a printable file? And, yeah. and he wrote back, yeah, do you want to print and experiment with it? Ah. I was like, ah, yes, if we could do those things. Anyway, that's how that kind of all got started. So one of the wonderful things that he can do is um, he's working with a couple of mechanical engineering undergraduates who are uh, refining the 3D model so that it is actually printable. And we have a we have a second prototype now. It still doesn't work quite right. We're mm-hmm. still like fine-tuning it. And when I say we, I mean the mechanical engineering <laughs> students uh, under Dr. Rose's supervision are figuring out. So they're doing um, all of that, all of that stuff. And uh, yeah, and in the process, I've learned a lot more about the artifact like as we go. So yeah. it's been a really interesting a very interesting collaboration um, in kind of deciding uh, how we'd like to move forward. Like I've learned a lot about how modern prostheses are assessed, like uh, for like their utility of if they're useful or if they're not for people today, because the idea is to adapt some of that sort of back historically contextualized into the early modern period. So he's sharing a lot with me about, you know, his specialty in assistive robotics and, and, and what he knows about, this kind of modern prosthesis assessment and uh, an exchange. Uh, I'm giving him an earful about what early modern life is like <laughs> and how do we, how one adapts sort of like one idea to, is there a way to responsibly adapt it to this other context? Yeah. What does that look like? So it's a very, it's a very fun um, working relationship. 
That's awesome. That's awesome. So for our last question on this side of things, what is the larger story you hope your readers will come to understand after uh, understanding or reading all the stories from your book? So the biggest thing that I hope that readers uh, take away from the book is actually, it's actually one of uh, looking at how medicine and ideas about the body are shaped by many different groups of people, um, many different groups of historical actors, and this change, what I argue is that, you know, at the beginning of the early modern period, there's this hesitation to really kind of manipulate the form of the body, but through hands-on practices over a couple of generations, by the end, suddenly, you have still caution, but you have a bunch of different kinds of amputation techniques, and you have sophisticated mechanical limbs, so there's experimenting that clearly happens and it changes expectations about the very malleability of the body, something that just uh, is fundamental to modern biomedicine, that the that human beings can intervene with the shape of the body in different kinds of ways um, to enhance the experience of somebody's encounter with the world, essentially. Yeah. And that this is sort of, you know, part of sort of where the stirrings of that kinds of belief kind of happen, like mm. in a certain point in Western medicine. But it doesn't come about just from surgeons or from learned physicians. It comes about from both sort of traditional medical practitioners thinking and talking and doing stuff, but interacting with communities and their patients, and also with amputees themselves who are separate from medical practitioners like physicians or surgeons are going out and working with artisans like locksmiths and clockmakers, uh, blacksmiths, um, wood turners to commission these really unique objects mm. suited to, you know, what their needs and desires were. And this then feeds back into what surgeons' ideas uh, about how one should amputate and what is a, you know, something that they would recommend that patients who survive the procedure do. They start saying, oh, you should make sure you go get an iron hand. And that they're not the ones who sort of invented these kind of, this kinds of technology. Right. So this is a story that is showing kind of the, the importance of all of these different groups involved in working with the body and the directions of influence. They're really, they're, it's that it's actually quite complex and yeah. there are many different groups with agency involved in the story and with changing our ideas about uh, over time human intervention in the body yeah um, yeah so anyway that's the kind of overall takeaway is nice. that, that many different groups of people are important in the story yeah yeah we're gonna mm -hmm. take our last ad break but we'll see you in two minutes All right, welcome back to It's All History to Me. We're about to finish up our final thoughts and our trivia questions. So are you ready for the trivia? I hope so. <laughs> um, our question is, when is it believed that the earliest recorded amputation took place? Okay, so I was saying earlier that, as I recall, there was a recent article, like just recently, that they found the skeleton of a like a neolithic person that seemed to have undergone an amputation which suggested that there was surgery was more sophisticated much earlier on than was ever believed is that how does that sound um what we found was according to science.org run by the american association for the advancement of science researchers have found evidence for the earliest known sur surgical amputation tens of thousands of years before the advent of moder modern surgical tools, antibiotics, or painkillers, which must have occurred some 31,000 years ago. Yeah, I when it came out, when that story came out, one, I had like three people send it to me. That's one of the <laughs> things about being known as someone who works on the topic that I work on. Yeah. I always get like cool articles about, have you seen this? Uh, so I got that article like a, like a, it was flagged for me. But it is a really cool idea. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yes, absolutely. And the article goes on to say that it was a team of Australian and Indonesian scientists that excavated the floor of a cave uh, in a remote, densely forested region of Borneo. 
and that they scraped away a section of the cave floor inch by inch and discovered a remarkably intact human skeleton reclined in a kneeling position with stones positioned above its head and hands as if they were grave markers. And then within that skeleton, it looked like there was an amputation. Was it a leg amputation? Was it a lower limb? I'm trying to remember. Good question. I feel like it. I remember it being a lower limb one, but I'm I not think, sure. I think that's correct. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But yes, super, mm-hmm. super interesting. That yeah. was when the first one possibly took place. Mm-hmm. So we always like to end our discussions with the two same questions for all of our guests. So our first one is, why is it important that we study history? So it's important to study history because one learns so much about the present from doing it. (laughs) Like, so one learns about sort of how the the world sort of is the way that it is today in some ways, which helps bring kind of a lot of uh, under understanding about where you know different groups of people like you can learn both about your own community but about other communities as well and like where different kinds of traditions and ideas are coming from and their roots and how things have evolved over time um it's also important to study history because it's very humbling we always think that we know everything (laughs) yeah (laughs) like at every point in history people thought they knew everything Mm. and then 50 years later there would be students in a classroom laughing at how antiquated those people were. Right. I don't, right? Like, that's and that's funny. something that I tell my students is that learning about history, it, it reminds you that what you think is just, you know, we know today because now we, we, we just know everything, right? Is that in 50 years, there are going to be students in a classroom saying that about you. Yeah. Like, right? <laughs> so that's like having that humility is really important. And the other thing I'll say is it's important that we study history because it – it allows you and encourages you to develop the skills to put yourself into the mindset of somebody who's not you, to put yourself into another sort of cultural context. It helps develop sort of skills of um, empathy and of, of learning about and, uh, and analyzing um, cultures outside of the one that you're most familiar with. And that's a really powerful tool to sophisticatedly navigate the world today and to be, you know, part of uh, a global society, essentially. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So for our last question of the hour, what advice do you have for current and future students of history? So my advice for current and future students of history is, I'm going to do sort of the age-old thing of, repeating something my advisor told me which is um (laughs) current and future students of history follow the sources so if you're working on uh if you're working on a paper you know or for you're working on a project of any kind and you seem to have come to a dead end or or your sources are taking you in an unexpected direction like you know follow the sources figure out what sources are there and or you know go in the unexpected direction you weren't you weren't intending to go because they might be leading you to really interesting places oh yeah yeah great advice great (laughs) advice well thank you so much for joining us this morning dr haas we really enjoyed our conversation with you yeah Yeah. thanks so much for having me this was a blast yeah of course and for our final thank yous of the hour thank you to the history department and dr schultz the history club advisor for all of your work Thank you to the College of Liberal Arts for their support and our researcher, Colby, who helps us every week to put together our questions. Thank you to Weagle for providing us the space and the opportunity to do this program and uh, turn it into a podcast every week. So super thankful for them. And of course, thank you to our listeners for tuning in and giving us the opportunity to share some history with you. We'll see you next week for our last episode of the season. See you then. You've been listening to It's All History to Me, the show dedicated to exploring the people, places, and ideas of our past. Be sure to tune in next Thursday at 8 a.m. for more. But for now, keep it here on Weagle 91.1. See you next time.